couple of things before we get into our passage for the day. Number one, some of you have received an email from somebody that sounds like me, kind of. I don't know where it came from. I don't need gift cards. (laughs) I don't need a confidential talk with you, although I would love to. (laughs) But if you ever get a suspicious email from anybody on staff, just ask us if that was it. This particular one came from John Kavakis, WBFVA, at gmail.com. That's not my email address, although it's kind of clever, amen? <laughs> okay, it, it did not originate from my account. My account has not been hacked. Uh, people that are not on my contact list are receiving this. Some kind of ingenious software for social media or something was going on there. But the, the initial email was, hey, I need to talk to you confidentially. Let me know if you have time. And if you respond, it's like, I need these gift cards. And it's really insidious because the gift cards were supposedly for aged women who had cancer. Uh, and, uh, of course, people had gotten that far and knew right away it wasn't me. Uh, Jennifer pointed out that it was signed Senior Pastor John Kavakis, and now I don't sign my emails that way. Um, so if you have any questions, just contact us and let us know. You can text me, uh, you can email me, and whatever. But um, hopefully we've gotten sophisticated enough that we recognize these things. Uh, the other thing is, uh, two things. <clears throat> I've had a few people that are interested in a new, new members class. Uh, we'd like to get that started. Uh, that will happen on a Sunday morning, and uh, next week we'll have a short meeting uh, right after the service to talk about who would like to attend. If you're interested, come and talk to me, um, because if you can't make the classes, we, we have other arrangements we can make. The other thing is, I want to offer Apollos. We're a little bit late in the year, uh, but I think we're going to do it. So again, a few people have expressed an interest in this. Um, this is a deep dive into the tools that we all need to be able to study the word on ourselves, uh, for ourselves. Uh, so it's all, we use a statement of faith. There's some work involved in Apollos. This is kind of our, uh, our premier curriculum. Um, it's probably uh, a lot harder to start Apollos than it is to finish up. But basically what we do is we take the statement of faith and we use online tools, um, so cost is minimal, uh, to... Uh, analyze the statement of faith, and write our own doctrinal uh, position paper on these things. So um, while we're doing that, we work with a personal passage, uh, and we begin working through that through the duration of the class, so that by the end of the class, not only do you know who we are and what our statement of faith says, but we also know whether or not you can read Scripture objectively. And uh, we ask everybody to come up with a short lesson based on their personal passage. And from that, we get our teachers and we get our leaders as well. Uh, So, uh, Apollos will run 10 sessions once every two weeks or so. There will be appropriate breaks for the holidays uh, and and that sort of thing. Uh, But we'll finish up sometime in the early springtime. If you're interested, come and talk to me. Again, we'll have a short meeting next Sunday right after the service for those who are interested in either the new members class or Apollos. So I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians. Anybody remember what chapter we're in? Four, three, three. (laughs) So we're going to be in verses 12 through 21 this morning. Let me read through this. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is its destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. So, I went to Israel in 2016, um, and most of you have heard about my trip. I was over there for 40 days. Um, uh, but I, I went early. I went three days early. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I don't travel west to east real well. Uh, and, I, you know, my jet lag is incredible for that first day, day and a half that I'm in a new time zone that's so far removed from ours. So I went three days early. And uh, I'm in Jerusalem. First off, I got there at quarter to 5 a.m., you fly into Tel Aviv, uh, you get on a van, and it, there's nothing going on in Jerusalem at quarter to five in the morning. And so they drop me off at the Jaffa Gate, and I kind of know where my hotel is, except I, I've got this suitcase, and I'm on cobblestone, and I'm like, and it's the, I'm the only thing moving. And I'm like, well, it's kind of weird. Okay, and, and down at the end of the alley that I'm in, I see this lady walk by, all dressed in black. <laughs> She's just passing by the end of the alley. She stops in the middle, and she looks at me and just continues on. I went, oh, my gosh, I'm in the twilight zone. Rod Serling is standing somewhere over here in the corner, and this is just really weird. I get to the hotel. The hotel's not open. Nobody's answering the door. I have no idea what to do. Uh, eventually, I get down the street to another hotel. They happen to go, oh, yeah, you have reservations at a hotel. They're closed. And what do you mean they're closed? Well, they open up later today. So what do I do? Well, you can have a room here. And so I spent three days in Jerusalem by myself. Sounds like an adventure. But I'll tell you something. I went over there as part of a group. I didn't feel like I was part of a group. I felt alone. I, and it was fun. But I'm like... I'm not really part of the group. I don't know who these people are. I really don't know when they're going to hear. They're probably going to get here at quarter to five in the morning and not know where to go. I should probably be standing out by the Jaffa Gate and go, don't worry, the old lady won't bother. But for three days, I felt like totally distanced from everybody. It was kind of an empty feeling. Do you ever feel that way about being part of the kingdom of God? That you know, you know that there's something there, but it just hasn't happened yet. 
You're not living in the reality of, of who you are and who is in the kingdom of God. And I'm here today to tell you that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are a member of God's kingdom. Now, this is something that we know, but if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would admit that we're kind of waiting for that to arrive. We kind of know that we're part of God's family, God's army, we're one of God's children, but we're really waiting for the reality of that to manifest itself in our lives so we can lay hold of it and go, yeah, now it's here. We're waiting for it to arrive. Think about that as we go through this passage. Now, Paul, Paul is detailed about everything about his life without Christ and what that was like. And he's also made it clear that he's willing to give all that up, everything that he had, to be what he called found in Christ. And that his salvation, his personal salvation, has been secured not by anything that Paul's done, but by what Christ has done, by the righteousness of Christ. Now, I want to talk about this for a second. So we're going to do a little what, what theologians would call excursus here. But I want to talk about the righteousness of Christ. What Paul was describing was this supernatural transaction that occurred on the cross as Jesus took on our sin and God, listen to me, and God counted to us his righteousness. Now this might not seem like a big deal, but it's huge. And I'm going to try and explain to you why. He counted to us his righteousness. It's an accounting term that is used here. Things have been moved from one column on the ledger to the other column. And so what we would do well to note that the righteousness that we're talking about belongs to Christ. And it does not become, it does not become our righteousness it remains his. This is huge. And, and if you stop to think about it, this thing is merely counted to us. God sees fit to credit us with the righteousness of Christ, which is a good thing, right? Because if it were ours, if, if that transaction on the cross moved Christ's righteousness over to us and made us righteous, within about three minutes, we would taint our righteousness. And it would no longer suffice to keep us in God's good grace. Well, that's kind of complicated. But our righteousness would become useless as soon as we sinned. I mean, the righteousness that saved us was sinless righteousness, perfection, amen? Amen. So, this describes what theologians call imputed righteousness. Now, righteousness that does not move from one to the other, but remains with the righteous one. And so, if you understand how that transaction works, then that assures us that Jesus Christ, while taking on our sin, our sin was counted to him in the same manner, did not become sinful. Jesus Christ did not become sinful. Our sin was counted to him. And that assures us, because he remained righteous, 
That assures us that any sin that we commit subsequent to our salvation is covered by the righteousness of Christ. See, this is why our salvation is assured. It's not our righteousness. It's not what we've done. It's not what a great job we've done as Christians since we got saved. It's the fact that the righteous one is still covering our sin. Now, that assures of our salvation. And, it, and, and I've told you this before. If you understand that, then you understand we can't mess it up. We, we, we can't taint it. We can't lose it because we are redeemed and sustained. We talk frequently about being sustained by Christ. Amen. Christ's righteousness is what sustains us. We are redeemed and sustained by his eternal, unerring righteousness. We are members, by virtue of that, of God's kingdom, by the pure and holy righteousness of Christ. Now, if that doesn't give you a different perspective on grace, nothing will. So Paul lays all this out as a way of describing the new life he has on Christ. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a second. Because I hear a lot of teaching on the new life in Christ. And i got to be honest with you, a lot of the teaching I hear about the new life of Christ is a lot more about me than it is about Jesus Christ. It's about all the benefits I'm going to have and all the power I'm going to have. We'll talk about that next week. And all of the, all of the blessings of being in the kingdom of God. But Paul's got a new life. And everything has been changed. And he describes this new life in Christ as, as three aspects of life. Now, the, the title of the sermon is New Life in Christ. I want you to think about that for a while as well. And we're going to look at three aspects of that new life. And it's not what popular teaching would tell us. So, three aspects of new life in Christ. are Paul's got a new goal in verses 12 through 19. He has a new home in verse 20. And he's going to have a new body. This is pretty exciting, amen? He's going to have a new body, as we see in verse 21. So Paul ends the last passage with uh, chapter 3, verse 11. By any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, the word for attain here uh, is to, uh, it, it implies arrival. As, and Paul's saying, as I come to the resurrection. Paul is willing to give up everything he's had and everything he's accomplished to come to the resurrection. Now, the resurrection he's talking about is the one that will occur on judgment day. And Paul doesn't just want to be there uh, because you can be there and be on the wrong side, amen? Uh, but he wants to be there in Christ. He wants to be there with him in glory. Now, this gives Paul an all-new goal, and so that's the first of our aspects. And it creates an all-new way of living in regard to the resurrection. In verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. I love this. This is Paul, perhaps the greatest theologian other than Christ ever to exist. He says, I'm not perfect yet. That should give us all hope in regard to the resurrection. So he said, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's got amazing insight here. This is really quite incredible. He works to make Jesus and the resurrection his own. He's trying to embrace this. He's trying to understand the full implications of it. And why? Because Jesus has already made 
Paul his own. I want you to see where the action's coming from here. Paul is, is acting this way as a result of Jesus making Paul his own, as a result of a sovereign move of God. Now, one commentary that's called Brown, Driver, and Griggs Commentary in the New Testament paraphrases the verse this way. Paul wants to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of him. To simplify what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus saved Paul for the resurrection, and now Paul wants to embrace a new life for all that it's worth. He wants to live in this, this promise, the, the one that is, is made by the God who is faithful and true and steadfast. In his earlier letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote that believers are, should imitate him as he walks in a manner worthy of his calling. Same thing, idea shows up in Colossians chapter 1 and in Thessalonians chapter 1, urging believers to walk in a manner worthy of being children of God, worthy of their calling. So this, this undercurrent, this theme keeps on popping up in Paul's writings. It, 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 this is Paul embracing all that Jesus has to offer, constantly keeping an eye on eternity while working diligently in the time that he has left here on earth. And he wants to demonstrate that he's a member, he's a member of God's kingdom. He's one of God's children, a child of God who will be resurrected on the last day. That's a theme that runs through all of Paul's writings. It's something he's trying to teach us. And as he said in, in verses 8 and 9 in, in chapter 3 here, his desire is to gain Christ, more of Christ, and be found in him. Now, it's not that, it's not that he didn't get all of Christ in, in salvation. He did. You know, when, when we're saved, we get all of the Trinity, we get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in a full measure. It doesn't come in stages. It doesn't come to some people and not to other people. We get the whole thing. Why? Because there's union in the Trinity, right? And when we get Christ, we get everything that comes with him. So Paul wants us, Paul wants us to live like this is true. In verse 10 of this chapter, he says he wants to know Christ. But he's being honest He's not there yet. He doesn't know him for everything that he could be known for. He's not perfect in how he pursues all this. He's not fully grown. His faith is not yet matured. And he goes on to explain in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. You could put a little yet in there. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to do what lies ahead. Paul's still working on his faith. And he's in prison and waiting execution. This is the end of the road for him. He said, I'm still working on this. He's striving towards this idea of walking in a worthy fashion. Trying to live this new life that's been given to him. As if the resurrection is real. As if he could experience it. And is Paul's by the grace of God. Now, one thing that helps him to keep his eyes on this prize is to focus his efforts, listen to this, on what will be, not what has been. His new life is ahead of him, and his old life has been left behind. You can see a transition 
occurring here. Now he strains forward. I love the word here. Paul likes to think of himself as a runner. And that's the image he evokes here. Totally focused on, totally consumed by the finish line. Every fiber of his being committed and dedicated to getting himself there. Never looking over his shoulder, never worrying about what's happened, never slowing down. He sees the finish line. It's it's within his reach. He can see that in his life. So he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul could just lay down his sticks and go, you know what? They're coming for me pretty soon. I'm tired. But he writes from prison, I press on towards the goal. His goal is Jesus. Jesus is the mark, the target of his life, the focus of his life. He is the prize that Paul is striving for. And and Paul paints this image again of a runner embroiled in the race, totally committed to it. It's not over, not yet. He runs for the wreath, and he's going to keep on running because the wreath, that, that reward at the end of the race is phenomenal, and it is eternal, and Paul knows that nothing on earth can compare to what lies ahead for him. What if we lived like that? Somebody bought me a book, Your Best Life Now. How depressing. I I mean, now? This is it? I've got nothing to look forward to. This is, I mean, if you read the book with the right attitude, you kind of end up going, so this is as good as it gets? Oh, there's a country song along the way. Is that all there is? What if we lived our life like the very best was waiting for us? Like something that was totally unimaginable was ahead for us. Something that was so totally mind-blowing that we would have no choice other than to fall on our knees and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. I now see that I didn't get myself here, that you're the one who put me here. There was no other way for me to be here. What if the best was not just coming, but eternal? That once we, once we, we arrive there in glory, that it just goes on and on and on and on. Paul wants to live that way now. He said, that's why I'm not looking behind me. I'm not worried about how I got here. What I'm concerned about is where I'm going because that's the important thing. Paul wants to live like all of that's true. Waiting for execution. He wants this. He wants this new way of thinking, this new way of living. He wants it to sink in. Rather than living for the moment, rather than being controlled by circumstances and events around us, rather than living for himself, he wants to live for eternity. He wants to live for something transcendent. Oh, we don't talk very much about that, do we? We don't talk about the transcendence of our relationship with Christ. 
See, that's the problem when we, when we fall for this teaching about the new life being about us. There's nothing transcendent about it. There's nothing bigger than us. There's nothing that, that strikes awe into our hearts. Paul wants to live in transcendence. Wants to live in the glory of God right now because that's how he's going to be spending eternity. It's pretty deep stuff, isn't it? It is. And it's not for babes in faith. It's okay. But Paul says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Now, he's talking about his new life. One is focused on Christ in eternity, not focused on him. Paul claims that that's a mature thought. That living for Christ is a mature thought. Exemplifies a mature faith. Now, keep in mind the rest of the letter because it's a pretty stark contrast to the false teaching that's permeating the church in Philippi and most of the church in Macedonia. It's also a stark contrast to what Paul believed as a Pharisee. I mean, there's a whole lot going on here. On one hand, the false teachers are teaching that the new life is about you. And Paul, Paul doesn't condemn that. But he says it's not mature. I mean, we, when we got saved, it was about us. Oh, what's happening to me? I want to tell everybody what's happening to me, what's happening to me. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that, Paul says, but there's something deeper. There's something deeper. There's something beyond you. So as far as the Pharisees are concerned, uh, you know, Paul says that the mature faith, the mature life is not about you. Uh, and so these false teachers are take, taking you in that direction. Uh, whereas if you listen to the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the mature life is all about the law. And Paul says, well, that's not mature either. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. Paul's new life is about Christ and the freedom that he does indeed have in living for him alone. He's already admitted that he's not perfect. He doesn't get all this well that he depends on God's grace to get him through because he's not perfect. Now for Paul, life is about this race that he's in. The goal of knowing Christ and the goal of waiting to see Christ face to face. That's the maturity that Paul's talking about. Do you notice that the goal is Christ? The focus is Christ. The goal is eternity, not now. Paul says, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. But once again, his encouragement here is be patient with each other. Not everybody's going to get this. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates, not you and your persuasiveness. These are tough teachings. And openly, he says, not everybody's going to get it right away. And the implication is, let the Holy Spirit do the work. Let the Holy Spirit move. Don't argue with each other. Don't judge each other. Don't divide. Instead, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, just walk in the truth that you already know. We talk about a faithful God. Walk as if he is. The implication is that God is going to do the rest. Well, great. I love that. God's going to do the rest. So how do I do that? 
What does that look like? How do I sit back and let God do everything while I'm running this race? And Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He never does. Amen? Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Here's how you're going to walk it out. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says, do what me and my group are doing. Now, Paul's not setting himself up as a spiritual giant. He's saying, this is what the scriptures say. We're trying our best. We're not perfect. We're trying our best to live like these are true and real and that we can appropriate him. We're running the race. We're setting our eyes on Christ. We are striving for eternity. We are living like Jesus did to the best of our capabilities. Paul says, hold on to that. Don't let it go. Don't let anyone take it from you. Don't let anybody misdirect you or refocus you. There are those who are going to try to do that. And we see that in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, verse 19. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's new goal is in the heavenlies. It's not on earth. His new life is set on Christ, not on himself. And he surrenders everything he has to his Savior. And as he does that, he realizes that if, if, if this is true, and Paul believes it is, why? Because that's what the Word of God says, amen? If all this is true... Paul has a new home. That's our second aspect of living a new life, a new home. Verse 20, but our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says our. He's talking about those who are focused on Christ, those who who claim Christ as Lord and Savior, as opposed to those who walk as enemies of Christ. In a deeper meaning here, Paul's talking about those who have been transformed. Those who have gone through this this amazing transformation, this regeneration. Those who have this new life. How new is that life? Well, it's so new that their homes have changed. Their residencies have changed. Watch this. They are no longer citizens. And Paul uses the Greek word here, politemu, okay, It's important for us to understand what Paul's doing because he's using a political word. And the word describes a system of government. More accurately, it describes a system of government that somebody lives under. Think about this for a second. Residents of Philippi would understand exactly what's happening here because Caesar, Caesar Augustus, had conferred upon Philippi all the rights and privileges of being part of the Roman Empire. They were living under the Roman system of government. They were citizens of Rome, watch this, by decree. They were proclaimed to be citizens of Rome. Paul now says to those who follow Jesus that they are citizens of a heavenly realm. And how did they get there? By decree. Okay, 
We're not going to go too deep into it, but this is the, the doctrine of justification. God proclaiming our righteousness, our justification to him. So, new believers, old believers, those who call upon Jesus as Lord, are citizens of the heavenly realm by decree, and they are afforded all of the rights and privileges of being residents of God's kingdom. Now, that's you and me. And Paul's trying to draw this contrast between those who belong to Christ and those who belong to the world. And he now shows us how vitally important it is to understand this. Those who belong to the world, those who reject Jesus Christ, live under the world's system. They live under their old homes. The world's laws govern them. They are subject to them. They are ruled by them. And ultimately, and finally, they will understand that those rules and guidelines are totally inadequate. No governmental system that man has devised has ever lasted. But those who are in Christ, those who are walking like him, focused on him, those who are changed by their relationship to him, live under a new system. They live under a new set of laws. They are subject to and ruled by a new home, and that's in heaven. I love this. Look at the verse again and and pay attention to it. I'll put it up on the screen here. But our citizenship is in heaven. Pay attention to the tenses here. Our Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers, that's us. If we call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are right now citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is current. Our passport has been stamped. We've been admitted into the country. Even as we wait for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see this? We're not going to become citizens of a new kingdom when Jesus comes back. We are already, we are citizens of his kingdom now, waiting for our king to arrive and gather us together. Now, it's another concept the Philippians would have got right away. Caesar claimed to be the savior of the world. He claimed to be the focus of the world. Paul says there is a real and true savior, and it's not Caesar. It is Christ. This is what gets Paul in trouble. While Caesar rules over the Roman Empire, we all know how that ended up, amen? Jesus Christ rules over all creation forever. He's their new emperor for the believers, and heaven is their new home. So our true home is no longer here, but there. Our true home is in heaven. We're just waiting to arrive. Meanwhile, our trip is guaranteed. All the fees have been prepaid, not by anything we've done, but what Christ has done. Let me, let me give you a, an example here. Kelly and I bought our first home, 1984. We were pretty excited. We made the deal. We went to this office, and we sat there, and there's all this paperwork in front of you. You know, I'm like, sign, sign, sign. Kelly's like, let's read it first. 
She's far wiser than I am. <laughs> okay? But we signed it. And you know what they did after we signed it? Anybody gone through this before? They give you what? Keys. Keys. We had the keys in our hand. I was a homeowner. But I wasn't in my home yet. And so, you know, we got in the car, and Kelly said, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's go have some dinner, and, you know, uh, we'll go tomorrow. And she said, okay. And then we looked at each other and said, let's go now. <laughs> and, and so that trip to get to our house seemed like it took forever. And I didn't feel like a homeowner until I walked through that door. And the fact of the matter was, I was a homeowner when they handed me the keys. Actually, before that, I was a homeowner when we signed all the papers. See, that's us. That's us. We're not in heaven yet, but that's our residence. We're just waiting to get there. All the papers have been signed. We have the keys. There will come a time when we emerge here and go, oh, yes, this is what it's like. I could not have imagined what this was like before. I couldn't imagine what it was like to own a home until I walked into one that I, I bought. That's us. We're just waiting for that moment. I love that. But there's more. Because not only do we get a new home, we're going to get a new body. I know a lot of you guys are thinking, I'm going to look like Fabio. <laughs> Hold on to that thought for a moment. <laughs> Verse 21, our third aspect of a new life. He says, who, he's talking about Jesus Christ, our Savior, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Right, once again, we see the sovereign authority of God hovering over this. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul speaks of being conformed to the death of Christ. Just to give you some context to this verse right here. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Paul brings everything full circle at this point. States the logical conclusion. We, f we share in Christ's death, so we share in his glory. We share in his resurrection. We will be transformed. Right, right, we right now are being transformed spiritually. Watch this. We are being transformed spiritually. We are growing spiritually. There will come a point where we will be transformed physically. Physically. Now, just like Jesus was, and like I said, no, we're all, not all going to look like Fabio. Um, it's not that type of transformation. Our bodies, our bodies are going to be recognizable. Kinda. Kinda. Isn't that what happened with Jesus after his resurrection? He wasn't immediately recognizable. People would be talking to him, and all of a sudden it would dawn on him, I think this is Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, so that he wasn't immediately recognizable, but when he appeared, folks did not generally know it was him at first, but it was him, and he had a physical body when he came out of the grave. So we need, we need to understand the physicality of the resurrection because it's a model for us albeit somehow it was different, but that body that he came out of that tomb with sat down. It interacted with his environment. He ate. He walked along pathways. 
He clearly had a physical body, but there was something different about it, something that would allow him to ascend into heaven. Isn't that what he did? See, I think, I think we got a peek at what a glorified body looks like, what a glorified physical body looks like, a body that was untainted by the filth of the world, untainted by the sin that surrounded him, untainted, unfazed by this dying world that we live in, a body that is absolutely clean, a body that is completely, perfectly holy, a body that was made to exist in heaven forever. That's the type of body that you and I will have when Jesus comes back. If Jesus is our Savior, we will have a body that is absolutely new in every way, yet still bears the remnants of who we are because that's how God made us. Wow. There's, there's there are three aspects of new life in Christ. Notice very little of them about us. <laughs> okay? We, we, we should have a new goal. Paul's gone through this radical transformation. He no longer lives for himself. He now lives for Christ. And you can see, you can see the change in Paul. He's humble. He's deeply theological. He's totally motivated to the point that he's willing to give up everything for Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Paul's walking the walk. And he's trying to encourage the people around him to do the same thing because he sees the blessings that are involved in it. He's so focused on Christ that his wants, he is so focused on Christ that his wants and his needs are no longer his priority. All he wants to do is honor God, run this race so that he can grasp eternity, not because he's become perfect yet but he's working and living as if Christ is his all in all means he's no longer got a home here on earth so he's got a new home Uh, now we already have our new home Paul's just saying that we should walk like we already have a new home we should run the race Like, we know the end of it, and we can't wait to walk in the glory that is going to be in the presence of God. And we can't wait to experience everything that that is and everything that God has for us. And we're going to experience it in our new body. We'll have glorified bodies, bodies made for heaven, uncluttered by the world that we're living in, ushered into the presence of God by the perfect, unblemished, holy righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who told the Father that he was going to keep us for him. You know, like Paul, I haven't reached that glorified moment yet, and neither of you. But brothers and sisters, it's coming. It is coming. When my group arrived in Israel, we connected with them. I did. All of a sudden, I felt a part of the group. 
Oh, we're getting to know each other's names. I've forgotten most of them. The truth was that I was part of that group from the get-go. I may not have felt like it. The physicality of being part of that group I had not yet experienced. But I was. My tickets had been paid for. My passport had been stamped. I was just waiting for my membership to be fulfilled physically. That's us. That's us in God's kingdom. We are already members of the kingdom. We just haven't experienced it physically. And I kind of love this idea because even as I ponder this, as I try to appropriate it in the way that I live, I say to myself, this is just God saying, do you trust me? Have I proven myself to be steadfast? Do you believe what my word says? Do you believe what my son said? Do you believe what my apostles have written? Because if you do, then you belong to me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that there is a kingdom. (laughs) Oh, Lord, we know there's a kingdom, but we we confess that there are times that we, we just don't feel part of it. Oh, there's a lot of reasons for that, Father. Maybe our circumstances have weighed down upon us. Maybe we feel we haven't contributed enough. Maybe we feel that we have made some mistake or some error or said something that has disqualified us. But your word is faithful and true, Father. And you tell me that if, if I live by the righteousness of Christ, that I am a member of your kingdom. So, Father, by the Spirit in me, I pray that you would Motivate us to live like members, like citizens of heaven. Lord, that all the things that we do and say would be emblematic of people who have an eternal home in holiness. We pray, Father, that you would do this, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the gospel, for your glory, in Jesus' name. And now, Father, as we as we come together to experience fellowship and food. We ask your blessing on the women who have prepared all this, all the hands that have gone into the preparation of the food, Father, uh, that even in uh, in our eating and our fellowshipping, Father, that we would honor you in every way. In Jesus' name, we pray. If I could stand for a second, please. bow your heads I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Look, before you go, just indulge me. Sit down for a second. I'm going to say something that is shocking. Halloween is coming. I know there's a lot of controversy over Halloween. I get it, okay? 
I don't know if you saw the posting I put up. It is a celebration of All Hallows' Eve, which was not a pagan festival. It was a church tradition to prepare uh, the church for All Saints' Day. All Hallows' Eve is All Holy Eve. Okay? So, Halloween has taken on its own personality. I know we all think it's evil and so on and so forth. Don't give this day to the enemy. It belongs to God. This is the day that God has made. He's not taking a break. We don't have to cede this to the enemy. So I'll tell you what I do. We don't get much traffic in our church, in our neighborhood. But I go out and I buy the biggest candy bars I can. And I put them out in front of our house. And if somebody knocks on our door, I want to be able to say, here's a candy bar. The grace of God to you is a demonstration of grace. It's a demonstration of mercy. It is the greatest gospel opportunity that we have in the United States. How many days out of the year do you have people come knocking on your door en masse? Yeah, and, and so, you know, I've, I've got friends, and, and I've had to work my way through this. I've got friends that turn all the lights off and hide behind the curtains because there's evil things out there. There are evil things out there every day. Okay? And we're not to cower. We're to stand up for the sake of the gospel. So let us be the presence of Christ in our community at a moment when it needs it most desperately. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Let's go have lunch. Thank you. (laughs)